Hello, and welcome to Litigator Libations, a podcast designed to provide short, substantive, and hopefully helpful guidance on discrete litigation topics so that defenders can pick and choose what they want to listen to without having to commit to an hour-long podcast with guests and entertaining banter. This not only saves you time, but also relieves me of the pressure of trying to be entertaining. This podcast is meant to be educational and to help litigators think creatively about the law and their cases. It is not meant to direct how anyone should actually litigate in a particular case. It is also unofficial insofar as the ideas are those of the presenters and do not represent the official views of the Air Force or the Trial Defense Division. Litigation is, of course, an art, and each litigator must develop his or her own style. Always do what you believe is in the best interests of your client, consistent with the law and your professional and ethical obligations. I am Daryl Johnson of the Air Force's Defense Council Assistance Program, and it's 5 o'clock here in the National Capital Region. Please join me as I pour myself a drink to relax, sit down, and share some thoughts on defensive litigation and advocacy. For this week's update on the law, we're going to discuss the Court of Appeals of the Armed Forces decision in United States v. Heiser, which involved a challenge to a guilty plea for wrongfully broadcasting intimate visual images. Then, our focus on advocacy will look at a narrow but important issue, and that is phrasing your questions in a way that avoids adopting the version of events offered by that witness. The Heiser decision is a bit of a disappointment, not because of its holding, but because it is the first case from the Court of Appeals of the Armed Forces that interprets the new Article 117A, which prohibits the wrongful broadcast or distribution of intimate visual images. You will find Article 117A in Appendix 2 of the Manual for Courts Martial, which updates the UCMJ up through December 20, 2019. If you've read that new article, you know that there is a whole lot to it. As I read the article, there are four elements to the offense, but each element provides its own challenges or issues. I will not go through all of that because it would take an entire podcast, but I was excited to see that we were going to get some guidance from CAF on Article 117A. Unfortunately, the case is a guilty plea and it provided a poor vehicle for shedding any light on the nuances of the offense. The relevant facts of the case include the appellant posting videos online of him having sex with his then-wife. He initially told his wife that he posted one video for the purpose of making extra money. The problem, by which I mean the basis for criminality of the appellant's conduct, is that he did not have his wife's permission to post the video. In fact, his wife discovered the video on Pornhub because she saw on the appellant's phone that he had posted something there. She went to the video and discovered it was an image of her and the appellant having sex. She demanded he remove the video, which he did. Unfortunately, shortly after that, he posted three videos of him having sex with his wife, which he did, according to his stipulation of fact, as a means of getting revenge on her because he believed she was romantically involved with members of his unit. These images were discovered by the appellant's wife because she had what the stipulation of fact called a bad feeling that the appellant might repost the video, which of course he had. My favorite sentence in the opinion references Article 117a. This prolix provision, which this court has not previously interpreted, is complicated. I love that sentence because it is so understated. Also, I had to look up prolix, which it turns out means wordy or lengthy, so it made me learn a new word. And Article 117a certainly is a prolix provision. As the opinion points out, the article, quote, describes the prohibited offense in a single sentence of more than 300 words, end of quote. In my view, the main takeaway from the case is that it is very difficult to challenge a guilty plea on appeal. The opinion focuses on the interpretation of two of the four statutory elements. 
Because the text of the statute is immense and complicated, I'm only going to focus on the two portions of the elements that were at issue. The first of which required that the broadcast depict a person who did not consent to the broadcast and who is identifiable from the visual image itself or from information displayed in connection with the image. The second is the prohibited conduct must have had a reasonably direct and palpable connection to a military mission or military environment. Before we break down where the court landed on these issues, let's take a moment to walk through the implications for practitioners. It's worth noting that the court repeatedly stressed in the opinion that its review was not a full-on deep dive into every interpretation of the statutory text. Because the appellant had pled guilty, the court was only looking to decide whether there was a substantial basis in law and fact for questioning the plea. To paraphrase, the court was looking to see if the trial court abused her discretion by finding a fact that was not reasonably supported by the stipulation of fact or providence inquiry, or whether the judge misapplied the law to those facts. As I alluded to earlier, an appellant has a heavy burden when he seeks to attack his own guilty plea. So this is not the case for really breaking down the meaning of this statute, because this case kicked the can down the road on those larger issues. Okay, so regarding the first issue, which was that part of the first element that requires that the person depicted must be identifiable from the visual image itself or from information displayed in connection with the image, one initial question is, identifiable by whom? At least in the context of this guilty plea, the court seemed to say that the element is satisfied if anyone is able to identify the person depicted, including the person depicted. The appellant had argued, for what is, in my view, a pretty strained interpretation, because he argued that the person depicted should have to be, quote, readily identifiable, end of quote, by a member of the general public. In other words, someone not already familiar with the person depicted, such that they might be more familiar without a clear depiction of their face and such. The court rejected that view. Indeed, the court seemed to be satisfied with the fact that the victim apparently had identified herself in the image. The record was not expansive on this point, but the stipulation of facts said that after she had a bad feeling, she checked Pornhub and saw that the appellant had posted, quote, three videos depicting sexually explicit conduct involving her. Thus, the military judge had a basis upon which to find that the victim was identifiable from the image itself. I would note that she may have recognized him in the image or was simply familiar with the video itself rather than actually identifying herself. But again, it's a guilty plea, so the court is just looking for some support of the predicate fact. The court also points out that the appellant's wife was identifiable by considering the image together with information displayed in connection with the image. You may be wondering why the court bothered, because the statute only requires that the person depicted be identifiable from the image or from information displayed in connection with the image. Once the court found that she was identifiable from the image, why go on to look at the context? The answer is based on how the government elected to charge the offense. The prosecution took a play out of the Article 134 terminal element context and charged that the wife was, quote, identifiable from the visual image and from the information displayed in connection with it, which in this case was probably a good idea. That because the facts, as stipulated to, were that the appellant created a profile on Pornhub where his profile name was his first two initials and then his full last name which was also his wife's last name. He also included a picture of his actual face with his profile. He then labeled each video in a manner that made clear that it was his wife depicted in the video. For instance, I believe one was titled, A Quickie with the Wife. 
Add to that the fact that her wedding ring was visible, and, although the image was taken from behind, it showed that she was wearing her hair in a manner that she commonly wore it. Thus, Kaff found that the image was consistent with her usual appearance. Finally, the stipulation of facts said that the victim was an active-duty soldier and that she and the appellant were, quote, well-known as a dual military couple within the Fort Drum military environment, end of quote. Taking all of these things together, the court found that the trial court did not abuse her discretion in finding the victim was readily identifiable from the image and the information provided with the image. One takeaway from the court's analysis is that it appears that the universe of what can be considered, quote, in connection with, end of quote, the image is limited to what is depicted contemporaneously alongside it. That is also how the Navy Marine Corps Court of Criminal Appeals saw it in the 2021 case of United States v. Page, 80MJ760, which noted that the information known to the broadcaster, but not accompanying the image as broadcast, fails to qualify as displayed in connection with the intimate visual image. That brings us to the other element at issue, which requires that the prohibited conduct have a reasonably direct and palpable connection to a military mission or military environment. Relying on the dictionary definition of connection, the court said this element may be established if the broadcasted images actually do reach a service member, regardless of whether the accused specifically directed the images at the military and regardless of how likely the images were to reach the military. Here, the victim was a military member, so the court felt this element was satisfied upon her discovering the videos on Pornhub. On this point, I will give another shout-out to Major Alan Abrams, who points out that on January 26, 2022, President Biden signed Executive Order 14062, which amends the Manual for Courts Martial and speaks specifically to Article 117A. The explanation added to the Manual for Courts Martial states, quote, To constitute an offense under the UCMJ, the conduct must have a measurably divisive effect on unit or organizational discipline, morale, or cohesion, or must be clearly detrimental to the authority or stature of, or respect toward, a service member. End of quote. In a case like Heiser, where only the appellant and his then-wife were aware of the videos, I'm not sure it would rise to the level set out in this persuasive authority from the president. It will be interesting to see how the language in Heiser is reconciled with the president's guidance. Okay, turning to this week's advocacy focus, we're going to zoom in on a very specific area of cross-examination. That is, how do you phrase questions when examining a witness who has both favorable and unfavorable information? In other words, when you want the fact finder to believe some of what the witness says, but not all of it. How do you make it clear to the fact finder that you are rejecting the witness's testimony as to one point without confronting the witness? This comes up when you are cross-examining a witness and your questioning requires that you, at least in part, walk with the witness down their version of events. You do not want to confront them on a bad fact because they will not yield, but you do have other evidence that will contradict them. I realize this is all very abstract, so I will give a couple of examples. In our first example, imagine the government has called a law enforcement officer who was called to the location where the allegations took place. The officer is going to claim that your client made an admission at the scene. The officer will also give you some helpful facts, so a cross-examination is warranted. For instance, perhaps the officer will not remember things such as the time of day, the weather, where people were located, a description of the scene, how long he was there, and things like that but your witness does remember, 
Thus, you are painting the officer as an unreliable narrator, whereas your witness is trustworthy. Alternatively, the officer may remember all these things, and you are eliciting them for the truth of the matter asserted because they corroborate your eyewitness. Either way, when conducting this cross-examination, you may need to acknowledge that the officer just testified that your client made admissions. Another example may be when you have a witness who claims to have seen your client commit an assault. Your defense is that the alleged assault was actually a consensual touching. You plan to cross-examine the witness to point out that she had a poor vantage point, she was distant, that she only witnessed a brief portion of the interactions between your client and the other person, and that she is hostile to your client or otherwise biased. During your cross-examination, especially because you are walking through what the witness says she saw, you will necessarily need to touch on her direct testimony where she just said your client committed an assault. What these two scenarios have in common is that there are portions of the testimony that you are not going to be challenging, and there are portions that you will be challenging. For instance, in one of the examples we just discussed, you are not going to challenge that the law enforcement officer was on the scene. You're challenging whether your client made any admissions, but not with this witness. As you work through your cross-examination, you may need to address some of what the officer has said about your client in order to tee up what your witness has to say, or maybe even just to move the sequence of questions forward in an easy-to-follow manner. I should add here that part of your calculation should be whether you need to touch on it at all. You will often see young counsel craft their cross-examination so that they essentially run through much of the direct examination. That I find rarely helpful. Your cross-examination should be surgical. You are only touching on matters that you need in support of your theory of the case. Sometimes that means no questions at all. But even when you do need information from the witness, do not feel compelled to touch on everything they have discussed. Stay focused on your own case, make your points, and sit down. But, as we just discussed, sometimes making your points require you to elicit or touch on the bad fact testimony that the witness just provided on direct. There are three general challenges that come up in these circumstances. The first challenge is that you don't want to phrase your questions in a way that makes it seem that you are adopting or accepting the witness's version of events. The fact finder isn't familiar with the case like you are, and if the words you use seem to go along with what the witness said, it can be confusing to the members. Remember that once a person has come to a conclusion, it is harder to move them away from that conclusion. Therefore, if you and the government appear to accept the officer's testimony regarding your client's admissions, the fact finder may accept that as fact, and when you try to attack it later with a different witness, your job will be more difficult. Better to make clear early that this is an issue in dispute, and the fact finder should refrain from making any conclusions. You want your position to be clear, consistent, and thereby credible to the fact finder. To phrase your questions in a way that keeps the witness's version at arm's length, you can use some careful phrasing that conveys that this witness's version of events is not your own. So what do these questions look like? Here are some examples based on our law enforcement witness. That's when, according to your testimony, Airman Snuffy made his statement to you. Another might be, you were standing next to your vehicle when Airman Snuffy made the statements that you claim he made to you. Or finally, Staff Sergeant Smith was standing next to you when, according to your testimony, Airman Snuffy made this statement to you. In each of these examples, what I've tried to do is orient the witness and the fact finder to the timing or facts surrounding 
the alleged statement so that I can point it out and then move forward to collect other facts. But I did so in a way that gently points out that the witness's assertion regarding my client's statements are in question. To draw perhaps a starker example, the sort of questioning that we're talking about is the difference between starting your question with when he sexually assaulted you versus when you claim he sexually assaulted you. The second challenge in this area is that it is unnatural. Asking questions in a way that builds this distance between your version and the witness's version is really not a normal way of asking questions. When you're talking to your friend about what they did last night, you don't start your questions by asking, so, you say you were home last night, did you watch TV? You just accept what they said and you ask, did you watch TV when you were home last night? The fact that it is unnatural means adjusting on the fly during cross-examination will take some effort, which gets easier with practice. That leads us to the third challenge in using questions like this to keep that distance between the defense's version of events and the version of events that the witness is providing, and that is using these questions at the right moment. There are two main points to keep in mind when it comes to when these questions are appropriate. First, because the way of tailoring your questions is so unnatural compared to how we normally talk, you likely want to use this sort of questioning for those limited areas where you are pushing back the witness's version of events, or stepping over it to get to the next chapter in your questions. That signals for the fact finder that this is where the fight is and avoids confusing the fact finder like we already talked about. Using it for every question is a mistake because that may seem unnecessarily confrontational, confusing, or boring, and may even lose its impact on the fact finder. Second, use of this sort of questioning should not be used to just repeat the witness's version of events that you intend to challenge as part of your defense. So for our police officer example, as we discussed earlier, you will not want to run through all of the bad facts that were just elicited on direct, even if you have contradictory evidence. Doing so just isn't helpful. This is simply a tool that will allow you to frame your substantive questions in context so that the witness and the fact finder will understand your questions. It allows you to minimize the hostile testimony, but still get to the points that you want and need to talk about as part of your defense. Thank you for listening, and I hope it was helpful. Until we meet again, this is Daryl the Decap signing off. Check in with us again in two weeks when we cover a new topic. Until then, any ideas, comments, or suggestions you have are always welcome. You can email me at william.johnson.147 at us.af.mil. Thanks again for listening, and thank you for all you do. I wish you the best of luck litigating your cases. Just like you always do Till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away And will you please say hello to the friends that I know Happy to know that you saw me go, I was.